In this conversation, Ben and I speak to Lambert Sheworth. Lambert is the Strategic Professor in Medical Education in the College of Medicine and Public Health at Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia. Lambert has an extensive publication record in the field of medical and health professions education, with a focus on the assessment of medical competence and performance, both in undergraduate and postgraduate training settings. He graduated with his medical degree from Maastricht Medical School and soon became involved in medical education and medical education research. We wanted to get Lambert's take on the impact of artificial intelligence in health professions education and started the conversation with his involvement in the development of HPEBot. HPEBot is a chatbot interface to the GPT language model, which Lambert has been co-designing with Stephen Kutsir, Associate Professor of Accounting at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. The conversation covers the development of HPEBot from a pedagogical perspective, the potential impact of generative AI on HPE teaching, learning and assessment, concerns around hallucination, building entire curricula into language models, the research potential for understanding how this affects student learning behaviours, changes to institutional culture and digital literacy, the impact on professions, and the possible rise of private professional educational institutions that are supported by AI. We hope that you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. So thanks so much to, uh, for, for giving up some of your, your evening to have a conversation with us today, Lambert. I really appreciate it. Um, so I will have done a, a more formal introduction um, in, the, in the beginning of the episode, but maybe we could start just by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to be at Flinders, and kind of the trajectory of, uh, of your work in, in medical education. Thanks, Michael. I uh, I grew up in the Netherlands. I studied uh, medicine at the University of Maastricht. And, and if I'm quite honest, uh, at the end of my study, I didn't know what to pursue. And I thought psychiatry was it. But that uh, didn't turn out to be what I thought it was. And then I, uh, I got by chance, I got the opportunity to work at uh, a school for midwifery in sort of educational development. They wanted to go to PBL. And after being having been there for a year, uh, there was a permanent position at the University of Maastricht in the Department of Educational Development and Research. And uh, I thought, hey, permanent position, let's take it. And now I can see what I want. And it turned out that that's exactly what I loved. Um, what I love about uh, health professions education is is the breadth of the discipline. So on the one hand, I've, I've worked with a former PhD student of mine and we've put people in functional MRIs and we've looked at, at areas that are highlighted or active during fatigue when problem solving has to occur and stuff. And on the other hand, there's uh, somebody who's doing hermeneutic phenomenological study into tacit knowing. Um, I think that's the extremes that uh, of the discipline which means that you uh, you never feel at ease. I never feel that I have control over my discipline or the, over, over my own knowledge. And I jokingly say that my uh, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none, and my smallest deficiency is in, in assessment. I was very happy at, uh, at Maastricht University. Things were going well. It was extremely busy. It's a very busy department. And then I got a job offer here at Flinders. And uh, the work here is great, but it was also a bit of a lifestyle decision. I mean, if you've ever been to Australia and certainly to Adelaide, you know what lifestyle means. That's, uh, so yeah. that's how I ended up here. Yeah. 
Very nice. Uh, yeah, I spent a couple of months in uh, in just outside of Melbourne, and uh, I, I really loved it. Um, yeah, it was very nice. Nice people, nice climate, nice nice everything. Cool. So you've you've obviously got quite a wide range of experience in uh, in uh, health professions education, focus on assessment, and that kind of is a, a great lead into what I think of as something that's probably going to impact um, health professions education, medical education um, across all areas of, of interest. Um, so whether it's learning, teaching, assessment, um, I think that this this idea of generative AI is going to have a, a massive impact. Um, and, and you've, I think, to some extent been at the forefront of uh, some of the more technical aspects of uh, what this means. So you've worked with a, a South African professor, um, um, in Isn't accounting, yes, yeah. and uh, and so you you kind of worked with him on uh, HPE bot, and uh, from from what I understand, it's a front end that taps into the ChatGPT uh, API, um, and so you can ask questions about health professions education, and and the chatbot will will give you responses. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about? how that started and what you yeah. hope it aims to, or what, what you think it's going to achieve. Yeah, Stephen and I, uh, we uh, we had a sort of exchange of ideas type of working relationship for a while. And then he created this bot for accounting education. And he sent me an email and said, Lambert, we've been working together so nicely. Uh, I've also created a version for health professions education. I'm going to call it HB in uh, HB now and uh, for short. And um, he said, have a play with it. And of course, I was extremely grateful and uh, and excited. Uh, I'm excited about these developments. So I said things like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if you could? Uh, and then a uh, couple of days later, yes, now you can. Uh, uh, for example, one of the things he had, uh, one of the functionalities was you could uh, click a button and you would get a question. And I said, yeah, but these are factual knowledge questions. So what we use is a key feature approach. And, and here's a prompt that I've written for uh, for my own GPTs to, uh, to produce key feature approach questions. Key feature approach questions focus on clinical decision making or medical decision making. They present a vignette or a case which contains relevant medical, but also relevant contextual, but also perhaps not relevant uh, medical and contextual information like patients. And instead of um, completely using the whole case, you focus on one or two essential decisions uh, in that case that those are the make or break decisions i.e. The key, the key features. And I said, it wouldn't be nice if we could have a, a, a key feature version as well. So you could test yourself on, do I have the factual knowledge or can I apply that knowledge in, in terms of decision making? And a couple of days later, that was there. And and I was trying it out with a, uh, with a, uh, uh, a simple question. It's, it's, uh, a thing called a, a symptom called painful arc and I said why is the painful arc between 80 and 120 degrees and it started explaining everything and then I said god wouldn't it be nice if you could visualize the anatomy thinking about the multimodality of learning etc so if you could visualize it and a couple of days later the wonderful Stephen could say came back and said well here's a button that you can call five YouTube videos 
And that was amazing. But when I started working with it a bit more, sometimes the five videos were not what I was looking for. So he came back with a refresh button and called five other videos. <laughs> and then I said, well, everybody's talking about the large language models and it's hallucination, etc. Personally, I'm not too much too fussed about this. I mean, your teacher can tell you wrong things as well. It's, it's your role as a, a student to be critical. Uh, but if you had multiple sources, that would be nice. And um, so that's when he built in a, a Google search as well, but in a narrative style, so um, drawing on Google. But there is also now a floating icon uh, with Sciespace Copilot. So you can use the same question to access the published literature. And now as a learner, I can compare what the LLM is telling me, what Google is telling me, and what the published literature is telling me. And now I'm forced as a learner to compare sources and to be critical. And then um, he surprised me again and said, well, now I've got a teacher version and a student version. And uh, through QR codes, you can connect them. And I said, well, now is, uh, is an important point uh, to understand that this is not a replacement of a teacher. It is a tool for a teacher. So what would educational sessions look like if you had this tool, for example, with the collective whiteboard and you had this tool? So we started developing some uh, some scripts for sessions, which would use all the functionalities in a way that's fit for learning and and my the, the the ones I find very important for for the learning are the fact that it has to be meaningful, mm-hmm. contextualized, that it has to be active, constructive, and that it uh, has to be interactive or collaborative. So how can we build um, how can we build scenarios for a teaching or an educational set session that would take into account these three the contextual, the constructive, and the collective. Um, using a whiteboard and therefore uh, giving students afterwards the opportunity or the possibility to take home the, ty- the, the whiteboard and have their notes already. So we've been playing around with that uh, as well. And uh, I've been advocating everybody to everyone since and say, you need to use this. This is fabulous. This is your personal tutor. You can interrogate it. It asks you questions. And it sees whether you understand it, and then you open-ended questions, and then you put in your answers, and it gives you feedback on the quality of your answers as well. So it's your interactive, sorry, it's your interactive tutor, as well. Um, and, I think. Uh, uh, sorry. sorry. Yeah. No, I was yeah, just no, going to say, just switch me on and start talking. <laughs> sorry, I, I was just going to say, um, when when I first came across HPE Bot, I tried it. Um, obviously, I didn't have access to the paid version. Um, and just to clarify, I think when we spoke with Stephen, he was saying that the paid version is just because the access to the API for GPT-4 is quite expensive. And so that that fee that you're paying is really just to cover the cost of the, the access to the API. This is not a, um, a commercial project, as far as I understand. No, absolutely yeah, not. Yeah. That would be far from us. Yeah. Yeah. So the first time I tried it, I was trying with the free version and I was saying, well, it, it's it's nice, but it doesn't really give me anything that the kind of vanilla chat GPT or, or any of these things doesn't give me. And then that's when Stephen kind of reached out and said, well, actually, the, the paid version has got all this additional functionality. 
And that was really impressive um, to see what's going on kind of behind the scenes once you get access to that other that other tier. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when I thought, oh, okay, this really does seem to have uh, some important implications for how we think about things like tutoring. Um, and it's really nice to hear this kind of iterative, ongoing development process that, you know, you with your experience in um, in HPE, you're kind of constantly looking at it and testing it and saying, wouldn't it be nice if, and then you, really nice that you've got Stephen on the on the back end who um, in a couple of days is is iterating on that and, and improving it. So that sounds really nice. Um, what's to stop, or not, not what's to stop, but um, so, why can't you're saying um, this is not a replacement? And I guess my question that I'm increasingly asking is why not? So at the moment, I can take a GPT and I can build a physiotherapy curriculum into that GPT. So the entire curriculum, all the readings, all the lectures from a physiotherapy program, I can build it into a GPT. And then on the back end, we've also got access to this, this API where we can now fine tune it and we can do all these other things. Why is this not a replacement in two or three years time? I I had this conversation. I, I've just come back from the Thai Medical Education Conference in Bangkok and I had this conversation with uh, somebody who was a, uh, an emergency physician. And she was talking, she was asking the same question. And I said, well, no, you're in the emergency department and there's this uh, and everything is full the holding bays are overloaded the waiting room is overloaded and a multi-trauma patient comes in what do you do how do you tri triage how do you de decide what to do first and then uh, so you have to uh, look uh, for uh, after that multi-trauma patient um and uh, at the same time, somebody asks you to look at uh, an ECG of uh, uh, somebody who could have a myocardial infarction. How do you prioritize? Well, that's not what your GPT teaches you. Um, and now you've decided to have a quick glance at the, uh, the ECG and your multi-trauma patient doesn't make it. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with, oh, God, if I had attended to, to that patient first, they might have made it, but now I've chosen to. So how do you deal with un, on, ongoing uncertainty? And I'm not talking about medicine, but it, it, it holds for all health professions. The, the, the thing about learning medicine is not the textbooks. The learning about being a medical practitioner is to be able to increasingly, to have an increasing tolerance for uncertainty to be able to be comfortable with not knowing and have the agency to find out and to turn that into knowing, to understand that the humans, healthcare, health is a complex adaptive system and it's not a yes or no, push a button. There's no psychohydraulics in, the, in, in medicine. Um, so there is a nurturing part. There is when, you, when you're in a, in a workplace and, and starting from the point of lifelong learning, you also have to be able to find the moments where you learn, find the opportunities to learn. So the enabling part is a, is a role. So it's the nurturing, the enabling. It is still a social process. So the partnering is also important. Yeah, the cognitive side and the facilitating of meaning making is, is also important. And that's probably where HPE bot can help and AI at the moment can help. 
but it's a tool that um, that we need to. Um, yeah, uh, in my typical Dutch direct bluntness, I say every vice chancellor who thinks that they can replace teaching staff by AI will have too short, too much of a short term vision and will run their university into the, to the ground. Because if they can replace it, if a university can replace st teaching staff with AI, so can any other organization that doesn't have to cross subsidize research. Education brings in money, research costs money, education delivers the money to fund research. I mean, if your, your success rate with grants is 10%, that means that you have to produce 10 grant proposals, nine of which are worthless. So if you think that you can replace the essence of teaching staff by technology, then another organization will come around and say, Oh, we can do that as well, but cheaper. And then you're out of the business. So you have to look at what's the value proposition of your of your education and specifically what's the value proposition of your people in the organization. And that's the nurturing, the partnering, the, the enabling, and perhaps even the facilitation of meaning making with AI and not. Sorry, I'm, I'm on a soapbox here probably, but uh, it's. Okay. Hey, sorry. Can you hear me? Okay, because I was having yeah, a bit yes. technical. And um, <laughs> apologies for my voice, which is incredibly croaky. Um, I was yep. interested. So on that that question of the um, sort of um, um, value proposition that you that you were just talking about, I was interested on the kind of um, student the um, student perspective on 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 this. So you, you know how prepared are students for this to be a, a form of teaching and kind of do they view this as adding value or as something which is like unexpected and therefore actually lacking value compared to other kind of t teaching things because you know all, all the stuff that you were talking about as being really important I think you know that those would be sort of sh shared values that, that we'd have and, and yet often often just bringing those things into the classroom anyway can be a challenge when you know um what what what, uh, what what people's expectations of what education might look like doesn't always fit fits it to that and so bringing in something else which you're using in, in in that way i was just interested in the experience of 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 using it with students yeah absolutely ben the uh, um the, the short answer is i don't have a, a universal answer to that because the uh, the assumptions the beliefs but also the context with which students come to to their educational uh, context is uh, different in different countries. I mean, I come from the Netherlands. The Netherlands has almost entirely publicly funded higher education. Uh, in the Netherlands, you pay roughly 3,000 euros a year for medicine. So you don't end up with this huge study debt that you might do as an international student in Australia or uh, as a student in the UK, which means that you, um, you do have a different type of conversation. And in the Netherlands, I can easily say that uh, what you're buying is not what you want, what you're buying is what you need. I tell my students here, I tell the students even here in Australia, I tell, uh, I don't think that education and assessment are supposed to be fun. If you want to spend money on fun, go to Disneyland. Uh, education needs to be good. That's a bit blunt and 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 stereo. It's 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 a bit black and white, but um, so I I think there's a very very important a very important principle for me is that I have to be 
ex able to explain to my students why I'm educating the way I'm educating. And why I'm asking them to do things. If I can't explain this, then I'm lost. So I have to explain why do I use AI in this way? So why, if you have portfolios and you submit your portfolios and I'm stuck because I've got so many students, why is it okay for me to de-identify what you've written and to ask ChatGPT to help me? Is that okay? But it, it requires an open and transparent dialogue in which I have to be able to bring in my knowledge and expertise as an educator to explain why I'm doing things. But that is the defensibility which is general, generally seen as one part of fairness in the whole process. Defensibility means different things in different countries. Defensibility in Australia is much more associated with legal defensibility and uh, due process and, and stuff. In the Dutch culture, it's much more associated with a rationale. Are you able to, to produce a convincing rationale as to why you're doing things? So the, the, the vague answer is it depends, but it starts with an open and transparent conversation with your students and explaining exactly why you're using it in the way, because you are invested in their learning. And that's where assessment and education struggle. Because assessment and education, we send different messages. In education, we send messages like lifelong learning, collaboration, uh, dealing with uncertainty, accepting not knowing, and all those things. And in assessment, we talk about finite learning, individual performance, ranking, competition, etc. And you can't have both value propositions in one organization. So one of, of, of your countrymen, uh, Michael, uh, Francois Cillier, uh, was a PhD with us. And he, uh, I remember one of the quotes of his qualitative study where uh, the student said, I know that swatting for the test is not going to make me a better doctor, but if I don't pass the test, I can't be a doctor at all. And that epitomizes that, that, that dilemma, that cognitive dissonance that students have to constantly navigate. So in order to use this in education and assessment, it starts with a realigning of the value propositions and they should both be focused on, of assessment and education, and they should both be focused on, I am invested in your learning and I trust that you can be a good doctor. That's the starting point. And then it's an open conversation. Sorry, short question, Ben, very long answer. <laughs> no, that's great. And, and is, is is part of that of the, the discussion around kind of how the use of technology is going to change in 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 their their sort of practice then as 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 they're working and how, how much do you see the use of of this in in education being actually developing those kind of skills is is that part of it or or is it is it much more of of a, of a kind of an educational tool and quite distinct from where things then might might go for how how students once they are practicing and and, and yeah. sort of um, graduated would then be be exposed to in clinical practice. Yeah, I I, I think we we have missed the boat already partly in in education because if you if you look at at least and I can only talk about medical or health professions education there might be different domains that are way ahead of medical education but 
Uh, we've missed the boat because now I don't see Gen AI as a fundamental technological change. I see it as the tipping point in what has been uh, an ongoing uh, issue. And I, I, I talk about democratization or distribution of knowledge, of trust, of of uh, access, of communication, and all these things have become widely available, but also the responsibility of many. The typical example I use is that when I, uh, in the past, when my wife and I wanted to go to a fancy restaurant, we would buy the Michelin guide. And the Michelin guide was based on one or two experts visiting that restaurant once or twice and writing their expert review, similar to the review process with publications. But I don't do that anymore. I go onto Google reviews, look at some of the top reviews and their narratives, look at the bottom reviews of the narratives and look at how the restaurant has dealt with the bottom reviews, etc. And that's how we make a decision whether that's a restaurant that suit that would fit us. So sorry, it is what Rachel Botsman calls we we're moving from institutionalized trust to distributed trust. So that's one. But we've used we've moved from institutionalized knowledge, encyclopedia, the Encyclopedia Britannica, to distributed knowledge. Wikipedia is just one example. Uh, we've distributed skills. In the past, if I needed help, I had to ask a, a savvy neighbor or somebody or hire an expert. Now I go on to YouTube. Just the other day, my printer didn't want to come on again, and I was ready to buy a new laser printer and then i went online and somebody says oh what you do is you pull the plug and leave it for 30 seconds pull the on a push the on off button and then plug it in again and hold it until it fires up again and it worked saved me a couple of hundred dollars so all that is has already been happening uh and now there is gen ai which you could say is a sort of distributed cognition or distributed intelligence but we are still thinking in terms of education and certainly in assessment that we should test only the biological skills of the the student and we have to realize that the student nowadays is an afforded technology afforded students they have at their fingertips access to knowledge to all those things i, I just talked about and we need to incorporate that in into our education so they have to learn how to use it how do you combine that infinite curriculum that's out there, which is unscaffolded, not quality assured, but it's infinite with the finite quality assured scaffolded curriculum that we offer? How do we combine those? I don't have ready made answers. I wish I had. I don't have, but I think these are the issues we need to consider when we talk about this technology. I was going to say um, you mentioned a tipping point, and I think in some ways um, I, I, I agree. The way that I've been thinking about this is, you know, for a decade we've been talking about how we need to shift um, HPE in a certain direction, as you were saying, more tolerance for uncertainty and complexity and, and all these kinds of things. And we pay lip service to these things, and yet our mode of teaching still remains very much the lecture, and you go and you tell students a bunch of things, and then you ask them to repeat it back to you. So as much as we say that we want to embrace this kind of teaching that 
uh, prepare students for the reality of practice, I don't think that we've been doing that very well. And what I see is generative AI moving us towards that tipping point where it has a forcing function that now forces us to move in that direction because you cannot anymore give your students an essay and ask them to just repeat information back to you. And so all the things that we said we want to do, I think that this is kind of moving us into a context where we no longer have an option. We have to embrace these other things. Um, so what is the value that you add on top of access to specialized knowledge? Because, you know, 30 years ago with the internet, we should have already made the switch that access to specialized knowledge is no longer our purview in higher education. And yet for, for 30 years, since since the internet has arrived, we still focus on giving students access to specialized knowledge. You might make the argument that over the last 10 years or so, we've been giving them access to specialized expertise. Um, so you come to me not because of the knowledge that I have, but you come to me in higher education because of my experience. I can tell you about practice. I can share, you know, my experience of breaking bad news to someone, you know, all those kinds of personal things. And now I think with generative AI, we have access, you've got almost universal, ubiquitous access to cheap expertise. Um, and I think that that's going to push us in a direction where we have been talking about moving, but but haven't necessarily um, uh, been going. I, I also just yeah. wanted to pick up on on Ben's question about you know how students perceive this, and I wanted to know: Are you aware of any research programs that are looking at how students um, in HPE are responding to things like HPE bot or or even just generative AI more broadly? Uh, there's a lot of opinion papers coming out. Um, every day, someone's publishing an opinion paper. Yeah, uh, I'm not aware of any studies, but it's something which is uh, we have just started, and we've got funding for it because um, we look at these things very much from a. Uh, I think it comes from ecological psychology, where we look at affordances and effectivities. And we think that these things only work if the affordances and the effectivities are, are well aligned. Um, I don't know whether the terms are familiar to you, but uh, affordances is basically what the tool allows you to do. I can hammer in a screw with a hammer, but I can't unscrew it with a hammer. Uh, any carpenter now gets the, the hives. But the uh, um, and effectivities is uh, what the user is able to do with it. I mean, there's a zillion things you can do with Microsoft Words, but I probably only use 150 of them, and that's it. Um, and uh, the effectivities in education, and that, that harks back to you, your question, Ben, the effectivities in, of the students in using these, these things um, are very much formed by their epistemic beliefs about what, what is good education or what should education and assessment look like which is reinforced by, at least in, in medicine, in medical education and, and, and many health professions education settings by uh, teachers who have never had formal education about education. So it's very logical for them to uh, relate to how they were taught. And then you get what, what, what uh, uh, Eric Hombo jokingly calls nostalgia uh, profunda imperfecta, uh, so the, 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 like back in our days, we did it like this, but we don't practice medicine like we did 50 years ago, and we don't practice education and assessment like we did 50 years ago. So the first step is to to 
understand those naive beliefs, as Stella Vosniada calls them in, in, in her research, these naive beliefs about what is good education and what's good assessment, uh, try to dispel some, and then look at, at um, how can you optimize, but your communication, and I am a broken record, but your communication towards your learners always has to start from, I have your best interest at heart. I am focusing on your learning. Uh, I sometimes said to my students, my only interest is to make you the best doctor you can be. I am already a doctor, so it's not about me, it's about you. And that is a simple thing we've got We've got here at Flinders, uh, we use progress testing. Progress testing is a form of longitudinal uh, knowledge base or application of knowledge based testing. If a student performs peer, uh, poorly over a certain amount of time, they are invited to special study coaching. And the opening sentence is never, uh, is, is always, you're not here to learn how to pass the test. You're not here because we think you're a bad student. You're, you're here because we trust that you have everything in you to become a good doctor. But one of our diagnostic instruments is telling us that you're struggling. So our duty of care is to see where we can help. And 95% of those students have either financial problems or emotional problems or health-related problems. None of these students have an all-general study strategy, which is inadequate. Students never have lack of intelligence or what have you. So it is a culture. It is dealing with those beliefs. And it is the open communication, which I think uh, are essential. You've talked a little bit about uh, what I would think of as student preparation. Um, so, you know, Ben's question earlier about, you know, how are students receiving this? And I think part of that might have to do with like a, a literacy around using technology, using tools as part of their teaching. You've just mentioned a, a lack of study skills um, that are, you know, quite generic that might help students uh, take better advantage of, of the opportunities that we're providing. Um, so on the one hand, we've got preparing students for what learning with AI looks like. Have you done any work around preparing teachers for the use of AI? You've, you've talked a lot about some of the changes that might need to come. Um, how, how are teachers going to use this? Should we just give them access to HPE bot and say good luck? Or is there maybe a more nuanced approach? I think teachers need perhaps even more staff development on this than, than students. It's, it's my experience. I I detect quite a lot of resistance in many teachers, like, oh, no, this could never replace me. And, oh, I've, I've tried it once and it gives me very bad questions. Or, uh, and, I, um, and I keep on saying that you won't, the, the old mantra, you won't be replaced by Gen AI, but you will be replaced by somebody with Gen AI. Um, and I keep on showing what you can do. Uh, I mean, I've I've built one GPT that produces multiple choice questions for for anyone who wants multiple choice questions, and it's an interactive one, and it asks you what you want. And uh, behind that, I put in the whole prompting about uh, what type of questions and the item construction rules, etc., and how to determine relevance and and, and stuff. Um, and then I show it and say, oh, yeah, that's very nice. And there's no uptake. And I'm, uh, it, my younger self would be highly frustrated. Now I think it's not my problem. But 
Um, no, I, I think I think there are uh, a lot of teachers who um, who find it scary and who find it uh, because there are two fundamental questions uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm relating back to assessment. Uh, the two fundamental questions that are being asked is if AI can pass the test or produce the, the assessment artifact, what's the relevance of the task of the assessment? And more importantly, if AI can produce the, the artifact or, or pass the test, what's the validity of your assessment? Because, um, and and I think that's what teachers, sorry, that's what, what teachers find very threatening uh, in terms of, uh, I have to completely rethink my assessment because a single event, high stakes events as, uh, as assessment, uh, as the backbone of assessment are no longer valid, not even relevant. So the, the the relevance is an existential one. The the other one is uh, is a fundamental one, um, and I think many teachers find it very difficult to conceptualise what the alternative would look like, um, because the alternative would must, in my view, entail that your value proposition of assessment and education are realigned. And that's a fundamental change in thinking. So sorry, I, I guess, I'm very preachy. I know I'm very preachy. Sorry. No, that's that's why we're here. That's why you're here, Lambert. Um, I I wanted to ask you. You've mentioned the alignment now between teaching and assessment, and you've you've kind of brought up that point a few times. Um, so if we are going to look at generative AI as a kind of formative, uh, not, not assessment, but uh, a way for students to to approach their learning. How does assessment change because of this? Should we be using generative AI as part of assessment or do we stick to, I don't know, do we look at programmatic assessment and say, okay, well, let's keep using something like that with an AI flavor or, or does assessment change fundamentally because, because teaching should be changing so much? Oh, I, I think with uh, AI, we can do stuff in assessment uh, which have been on my wish list for for a decade but now we can do it <laughs> let me first preface this by a couple of experiences that we had in maastricht when we introduced programmatic assessment assessment for learning program here are just a couple of findings the first one is that with programmatic assessment so ongoing longitudinal assessment instead of adding up things because they have the same assessment format you provide a narrative triangulation between parts of different assessments. Um, so the first event is that the biggest problem we had with our students was not that they were not studying hard enough, but they were studying too much. That was the biggest problem. So we often had to tone them down because passing a test is finite, but learning is infinite. The second event was that uh, one module coordinator said, well, we've got these lovely assessments. Um, I'm not going to rewrite them every uh, every year. They're actually wonderful. They're integrated. They work well. And I'm going to tell the student that uh, students that we are reusing the same assessments, but it's not a make or break assessment. So if if you want to rob yourself of valuable feedback and entry into your portfolio, why would you? So, and students never try to find out the old questions. Why would they? The third one is that I had a couple of students. So I was a, a portfolio coach. And uh, at the end of the year, the portfolio coach gives an advice to the pro progression committee. 
and the student can also voice their opinion. And uh, mostly there was agreement, but in, in a couple of cases I said, I'm not sure, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and I'm going to recommend the pass. And the student said, no, I'd, I'd rather have you recommend the fail. And the first time I was, why? I said, well, summer holiday is coming up. Uh, I know that I'm not ready for the next year. There's a lot of work I need to do. If I don't fail, I'll be on the, on a beach in southern France. Uh, but if you do fail me, I will get some support and there is a, a strong incentive for me to catch up and then I'll be ready for next year. Uh, so that that is what you can do with a culture. So now assume that you have uh, an AI <laughs> which at the back end has uh, all your assessment information automatically. Let's say that you import that with Zapier AI. So that's, that manages the process. And the student can uh, continuously interrogate the AI and say, how am I doing? Uh, or here's a bit of feedback that I already also received and I enter that. And can you help me uh, organize this and give me some feedback on how I'm doing in my competency domain as a collaborator? Uh, or with specific questions. Uh, here's a piece of feedback and I don't know what to make of it. Or, uh, yeah, I'm struggling with defining professionalism. Can you help me find some sources that, that, that help me to better define how I should operationalize professionalism in my own? So suppose you had something where a student could, on a more or less continual basis or on a request basis, do this. And perhaps you would start in years one and two having this tutor-led or instigated, but gradually you want your students to take that agency over and over and be their, the agentic learner and constantly evaluate how am I doing in the different competency domains? How am I progressing towards an endpoint? Uh, perhaps with a staff member uh, in, the, in the back end, uh, if you need some human interaction or you factor in the human interaction once or twice a year, but the student could continuously challenge themselves, seek, perhaps seek some reassurance, etc. They could take them with them, this with them after they graduate. Why not? And they could turn it into the, their lifelong learning. And you don't need an expensive portfolio stuff for this. I mean, if I had to choose a portfolio for my uh, students, I would use qualitative analysis software. I know you would just uh, the Atlas DI or Enviva or what have you, and I would use the uh, the competency domains or learning outcomes as as codes. And so I'm constantly coding passages to the learning outcomes and turn that into a narrative about my achievement, my progress, my prognosis, and my further steps. It depends on the culture and it depends on how your students, how well your students are willing to, to pick that up. But we know in our portfolio system that most students after one or two years are ready to pick that up and they become quite good at that reflection and not just writing nice reflection reports, but quite good at critically analyzing their own stuff. If you're willing to leave that in their own hands, and then perhaps 
say at the end, there is no graduation decision, but you have to apply for graduation like you apply for a job. Here's my portfolio. Here's my CV. I think I'm ready to to uh, progress to internship. And you can interrogate me because this is all my work. Then you build that agency, which I think is needed as part of assessment that the agency is needed for a true lifelong learner. Otherwise, they're, they're just chasing CPD points. Yeah, I really like that idea of using a qualitative analysis software to to build up a portfolio. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes sense when you when you put it like that, rather than a box ticking exercise where we kind of make sure that we have all these learning outcomes included in all these assessment tasks. Um, I wanted to uh, ask about maybe something that's a little bit more controversial. Um, if if we can use language models to talk about learning, teaching, assessment, um, why can't service users use language models to talk about their back pain or you know whatever whatever the case may be? At what point does you know Google's fine-tuned medical language model uh, surpass your GP? Um, and and Let's move it out of the kind of Australian slash UK context, and let's say India, um, you know, Africa, where people don't have access to to medical expertise. Um, so, I don't know what does the world look like when every person on the planet has you know cheap access to medical expertise that they wouldn't ordinarily have. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um. I think that technologically, oh God, what was it? Never make predictions, especially not about the future. But I think technologically, there is probably just one, two, three years ahead of us. Um, a couple of years ago, I was asked to uh, to give a presentation about the future of medical education and perhaps of healthcare. Um, for the medical deans here and i had a small uh, short scenario of somebody uh, the modern patient who uh, had some complaints <laughs> listed or uh, conversed with an ai generative ai wasn't in the cards yet but uh, the, the, uh, it's, it was my magic crystal ball uh, so talking uh, with a with an ai that would uh, uh, then ask questions back and and you would get that interaction and then he would use a high resolution camera to uh to make a full body image etc and upload that and based on that um the ai would suggest some additional diagnostics he would go to a commercial lab near him do the the diagnostics that would be sent off to uh and and radiology perhaps and that would be sent off to another AI in India uh, that would come back with a differential diagnosis in the two most likely one and suggest some addresses of patient advocacy platforms uh, and some literate background reading. Uh, and then the, uh, the patient would gather all that information, analyze it, and then visit their GP and said, this is scary. Oh, I don't know how to man manage this. Can you be my partner in this journey? 
and the word partner is uh, is very important for me because uh, we healthcare is moving away from I'm the the uh, nitwit patient or the ignorant patient who goes to the doctor and the doctor knows everything and the doctor tells the patient what they need to do and the patient obediently does it to where uh, in most cases healthcare is is partnership at least in the Western world it is a is a partnership it's a it's a joint journey. And that's where the human factors come in, in that joint journey. But uh, I gave HPR, I introduced HPE bot to uh, a GP here. And the GP said, I have it open on a separate screen all the time. Not only for me to quickly check, but sometimes I can uh, uh, quickly whip up a YouTube video and explain it to my patients and show the YouTube video to to my patients. Uh, I use it all the time as a second pair of eyes, uh, etc. So even if you don't have access to, <coughs> sorry, if you don't have access to commercial lab and uh, radiology and what have you, or even to a GP, it can still be uh, readily accessible and it can do a pretty good job, uh, depending on, on the context in, in, in which you work. Um, and I think it's 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 a gamut of possibilities rather than uh, one or the other. While you were talking there, it reminded me of um, Eric Topol's book, uh, The Patient Will See You Now. Um, and, and that's exactly the kind of future that he talks about, where the patient's ability to aggregate, collect all of that information, analyze it, and make sense of all of the information that they are generating themselves, um, and then going to a... Uh, whatever health professions that might be relevant, going to them and saying, you know, these are my concerns. How do we, how do we work through this? And you know, we talk about patient-centered care all the time, and this might be a way that the patient truly is at the center of of yep. all of that decision making. And it comes down to access to data. And and I'm just wondering if we bring it back to the HPE context, at what point do we start having a situation where we start saying to teachers, the student will see you now. So the student is making a decision about when they need access to the teacher. Um, and this, I'm reminded a little bit of uh, Joost van Weken's Delta Stream uh, physiotherapy program um, at Hahn University, where mm-hmm. the students are driving the learning process. And when the student identifies a learning need or an assessment need, then they go to the, the teacher and they say, this is, I've identified this gap in, in my learning. Um, how, do I, how do I work through this? And this kind of seems to be putting the student in the driving seat where we, again, we, we talk about student-centered learning, but we're far from it. Could this be a way that we actually do implement student-centered learning where they're at the center of the learning process and they reach out for content and expertise and facilitation when they determine that they need it? Could this be the tr- kind of true self-regulated learning pathway? Absolutely. And and it that's, that's actually, if I were Han or any other, educational organization, I would find that scary because uh, nowadays what would make a student only contact teachers within the, uh, in your own organization. So we've been playing, just theorizing about what would it look like if you had a medical course, which is entirely in service? Why, why would you go to university to do a medical degree? And if I'm being fair, and oh, people will kill me for saying this, but I've studied medicine. Medicine is a is a professional education. 
it's an education for a profession. It's not your really academic scientific uh, thing. It, there's no philosophy of science in the, in most medical curricula. Uh, for example, uh, there's very little methodology and stats in, uh, in in most. So it's more a professional education. But perhaps I, I'm seeing a skewed, uh, only a skewed sample of uh, of medical degrees. But um, so what would be if you had and just as a as a thought experiment uh what would be possible if you said here's a health maintenance organization in the us who want to uh educate their own doctors what would they need well you can actually position your student with a, a practitioner have a longitudinal integrated clerkship approach, have your portfolio, programmatic assessment, assessment for learning, etc. Use HPE bot as, uh, as your main tutor, use other AIs, etc. what have you. But now there is the student, now there are students who actually uh, struggle with a couple of basic science concepts. And you're not employing all kinds of basic scientists, not for that one question. So what would be if you had a Uber model for basic scientists? Or a platform economy model for basic science? It doesn't have to be that hyper capitalistic stuff, but simply that you say, I've got a, a, a PayPal, uh, I've got a platform. Uh, people can subscribe to that platform and say, I offer myself and this is my hourly wage. Um, I offer myself for questions. Uh, and everything is organized like an Uber ride or an Uber Eats or Alibaba or what have you. And it's just organized. So now I have, um, I'm seriously struggling with understanding the background of the purine uh, synthesis or uh, in gout. And I don't understand it exactly. Well, there's an expert on the purine synthesis of gout in Philadelphia. I can talk to the world's experts. So those things are technological possible. And that's why I say it's a tipping point, but together with the rest, it's a disruption. It's a possible disruptor. And that's the reason why I'm constantly hammering on, go back to your value proposition. Because if you think that you should just mimic the process with new technology, it's not going to work. You have to focus on where's the value in my organization what's the value to the learner that i offer and what's the value that my staff offer to uh, to the learner and then you can see how i can add uh, technology to that value proposition and i'm very soapboxy about it and i'm very preachy about it but i think if we don't do this the industry higher education industry will be disrupted Sorry, do you want to go ahead, Ben? I was just, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, interested to 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 push push on that point a bit. I think because on the one hand, I, I can I can totally agree and 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 see that you, you know the the argument that you're making there. On the other hand, you know my experience certainly of students here is that you know even where there's you know a, a, a relative expert in the thing that they are very clearly being signposted that they need to learn about sat in a room with a sign on the door saying 
these are my office hours. I sit in this room for an hour and I'd like you to come and talk to me. No one comes to talk to me, <laughs> you know, uh, it literally in, in the building. So it, it feels it feels a hell of a leap, if I'm honest, in terms of just the behaviour of students that uh, I, I would observe that they're going to suddenly go from that to being able to kind of make these choices and speak to the expert in um, Philadelphia on something to to have established like what they would need to do to to do that now uh, and not and again as you say not not because not because they don't have the intellect to do that not because you know they don't have the you know the, the underlying desire to to learn to to find out about this stuff but the conditioning of how they would approach learning you know up until this point and, and everything's here is is so feel so far away from that and 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 so i don't know i i, I maybe i'm the uh the, the, the i'm i'm certainly le less involved in 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 the the uh the the the, the use of of the technology than than either of you would be but but uh, but it, it it feels like on the one hand we've got a group with we can see we can see how this could work uh i'm just I was just struggling to see that it, it does work like that and and that it's and that the, the pace of change from a technology perspective you, you say well I, I think that we, we, we could be there or we could be there in, in two years and yet it doesn't feel like any of those student behaviors are going to change too much in two years time for, from here and so do we end up with then actually quite a you know does it sort of frap fragment out you know are, are there people who are able to make the use of, of of this and do it quite differently but then in terms of the vested interests of like the power structures that then kind of gatekeep everything actually this is not a disruptor of those things when the majority of people still are quite comfortable sitting within you know the the, the framework that they, they they exist within so it just feels Absolutely. like there's an awful lot of inertia to overcome even though yeah. the, the possibilities as you describe them are quite yeah. quite clear and sort of evident for those who can see them now, if you want to make that change, I agree. And if you want to make that change within the context of a traditional university, nah, never going to happen. Uh, but if you were to set up uh, like uh, the, the health management organization, the HMO, where the combination of, or here, for example, here, um, local health networks, a conglomerate of GP practices and local hospitals under a, one organization. If that organization could pull it off and to say, we want to educate our own doctors. And let's say you become a medical student and you start in year one and you observe in practice for one or two hours a day and the rest you work with HP bot and all kinds of other stuff and books and the whole, whole thing uh, to understand all the patients and signs and symptoms of what you have just seen. And because we were a small group, uh, there are students in different uh, in different practices, but they have an online community of practice. Um, those students uh, do one or two uh, hours a day of practice observation, but an additional one or two hours, they work in the practice like practice managers. Uh, I will not say physician assistants or uh, professional assistants. I will not use that word here. The, uh, the, or, or any other triage assistant that would have you, and they will work, and that is also part of their learning. So they give back time for time. They might work a bit more and earn a, a, a buck to uh, to contribute to their to what they need for a living, the cost of living, etc. And gradually, their their involvement will increase. So the practice component will gradually increase. The theory component will gradually decrease. In the end, you become an MD without any study debt. Well, 
or 80,000 or 100,000 pounds. Oh, that's a thing. The only thing is uh, that study debt, that lack of study debt also goes in the fact that we don't employ anatomist physiologists, but we have an Uber model. So, so it's not one thing in isolation. You would have to think of a whole package and I'm just now theorizing and it's never going to happen or not not in the foreseeable future because of rules and regulations and accreditations and medical councils and uh, and uh, and all all kinds of stuff so it's 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 a nice armchair experiment but if you think about if we combined what we know about learning what new, what we know about longitudinal integrated clerkships what we know about workplace based learning what we know about workplace based assessment what we know about progress testing how easy it is now to produce progress tests, how easy that is. Well, with HPE bot or similar AIs and a combination of AIs, then we suddenly get a program of a program of learning, a program of assessment, and a program of technology around it. Uh, much would be possible, and it would be would be cheap. It's theoretical because up until now, governments protect until a government of some country no longer does. For example, the government of Indonesia says we have such a maldistribution of doctors and there are so few doctors in rural and remote areas, we will fund this in rural and remote areas. Or the UK government says, ah, oh, countryside has too few doctors and nobody wants to, they all want to work in London or Man Manchester, etc. Uh, we're going to endorse this program uh, to retain doctors for the rural and remote areas. Then you've got a problem. I was going to say you mentioned earlier about uh, culture and the cultural change. Like I think if we if we assume that things will stay the same, then I think this kind of shift would be difficult to implement without a, a massive shift in culture. But I don't see universities adapting to this. What I imagine is that a private institution will emerge where they will provide access to the clinical experience. And I mean, that's the only thing that that universities control at the moment because of our um, agreements with with local trusts. Yeah. Um, so the state kind of negotiates this uh, an, an association, an agreement between us, uh, between the educational institution and the health system. And so we get access to patients. That's the only thing. And, and maybe the accreditation function as well, although private institutions can can have an accreditation function. But at some point, we're going to see a private institution emerge. And I just think of something and I, you know, I've got no inside knowledge or anything, but Physiopedia, for example, has an international network of clinical experts um, in a wide range of uh, physiotherapy disciplines. They've got access to possibly the biggest database of physiotherapy specific information in the world. Um, you stick a generative AI model behind that in a way that it can connect students to um, clinicians in their area. Um, and I don't see a problem with Physiopedia starting to offer some kind of basic entry-level diploma type physiotherapy assistant um, courses. Um, and then once they've demonstrated a proof of concept, uh, all that they then need to do is to convince the regulatory body that they've got the system and the framework in place. The regulatory body provides the accreditation to say that these degrees are now recognized. Um, I, I don't see a situation where that doesn't happen. 
and they can offer it for you know orders of magnitude less um, than than what universities charge uh, because they've got none of the infrastructure and you know salaries that we need to cover and and that PayPal model where you connect to people as and when you need them, um, I think that uh, is will be very appealing. Um, and so now all of a sudden you can start getting a physiotherapy degree or something that looks like a physiotherapy degree for 10% of the cost of going to university. And once it's done once and someone recognizes it, the floodgates open. Um, and so I don't think universities will change, but I think universities will become increasingly irrelevant um, because they're going to be competing against this other model where you can get the same thing. You know, we can argue about whether or not it's the same thing, but let's say a private institution offers a degree that's 60% as good, but you're paying 10% of the cost. Is that um, a, a value proposition that makes sense to, to people who are thinking about studying? And when you are then putting those people into parts of the world where there is no access to physiotherapy, um, is 60% of a physiotherapist better than no physiotherapist at all? Most people might say yes. Um, so I think that those dynamics are going to be driven by, you know, cost, um, and and universities are just not just not cost effective. Yeah, I agree, and I I actually think that uh, when done well, I think you get a hundred and twenty percent quality for for ten percent of the cost. Um, and there there might be differences in different. Uh, curricula and different disciplines, but I've seen uh, a lot of curricula where I think there's absolutely no educational rationale behind this. So a curriculum where you uh, you spend a whole semester on something of which we know that it's going to be forgotten two years down the track, but you invest almost a whole semester on it. Uh, we, my university has SWOT facts. So two weeks of uh, study free before the the final exams, so you can brush up for the final exams. There's tons of literature that doesn't work that way. The uh, um, universities again, and that's my my pet peeve. Universities still adding up in the clinical skills examinations. Your knee examination was below par, but your abdominal examination was better than average. So on average, your skills are okay. That's nonsense. If your knee examination is subpar, I have to look at other sources of information to understand why it was. Was it your technique? Was it your anatomical knowledge? Was it your rapport with the patient, etc.? What do you need to do to get your knee examination where it should be? Uh, so there's so much that traditional curricula do, which is not only uh, not backed up by educational evidence or educational knowledge, but it's actually contrary to educational evidence and educational knowledge. So, and I'm not talking about the the the, the beliefs and and the, but but stuff of which we know that it leads to better retention and better application and a more agile application of of what you've learned is simply ignored or actually contravened. So I think with the the right tools and and the right development. You can actually you can actually uh, do a lot better. We have the traditional split between the preclinical and the clinical. And the preclinical is a type of learning which is sequential. 
which is programmed, which is predictable, which is scaffolded. And then suddenly people are thrown into practice where the learning is parallel. It happens at the same time. It's unpredictable. It's unscaffolded. And you as a learner have to be able to, to take advantage of what walks through the door. Uh, and we expect our students to make that transition immediately, whereas it makes much more sense to make that transition gradual. And that's again where simulation, but also AI can play a huge role in gradually trans making that transition from scaffolded, predictable, sequential learning to the more messy, unpredictable learning in the in the workplace. So there's so much that's being done where where I think there's a lot of information on how to do this right, and you're still not doing it right. Whereas if you set up uh, a modern course like this theoretical one, De Novo, you could do things right. You could use principles like overlearning, interleaving, distributed learning, all this stuff it could be part of your learning and could be part of your assessment. So this sounds like a great opportunity for anyone interested in setting up a, a new kind of uh, HPE curriculum and, and organization. Yeah. Um, I know we've kept you uh, longer than we than we agreed, Lambert. So um, I just want to kind of take take an opportunity to thank you so much uh, for giving up your evening. We really appreciate it. Um, ben, I know you you haven't you haven't been well, um, struggling with your voice. Is there anything that you want to ask or or chip in before we wrap up? Uh, no, I'll just just echo the uh, thanks for your time and and for the the really interesting conversation. Cheers. Cool. Thanks pleasure. so much, Lambert. Really appreciate it. Thank you both. Have a lovely day. Keep well. Bye-bye. See you.